Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great to have with me Phil Ordway and Elliot Turner. As always, we have a great uh, show ahead. Phil, we're going to start with you, so let's get uh, right into it. Great. Thanks, John. I thought today I'd talk about um, something I did about 10 to 15 years ago when I was just starting out in the industry. I was fresh out of school. I was a new analyst at a, at a hedge fund and trying to figure out what on earth I was doing because I went in to, to get my MBA thinking I had a couple of years of like sell-side leveraged finance experience and didn't know anything about investing. I went into business school totally clueless, just hoping I'd figure it out. And like a blind person finding something they didn't expect, I stumbled across investing and and started reading all the great you know books all the usual stuff uh, on the in the field and so i started compiling this big long word document with basically a compilation of frameworks and checklists and little quotations and sound bites and i ended up splitting them into two different documents and i forget how it originally in, and one's like 250 pages long or something, and the other one's a little bit shorter. But I forget how they originally leaked onto the internet. I never intended them for public consumption, for sure. I mean, they were really sloppy and, and ill-formatted. But they it, every once in a while, somebody will like figure out that I'd put this together and ping me about it. And it, it picked up again the other day. And so I said, all right, well, I'll finally just like try to clean these up and PDF them and send them out. And I didn't even clean them up very well. They're still very user unfriendly. But I think the point of it is, and, and what I wanted to, to circle back on is that I do think there's a lot of good from this process, which is where anytime I'm trying to figure anything out, whether it's you know the foundational principles of investment or whether it's how a business operates or a new industry structure or something like that, I really try to go back to the original and go piece by piece in a very detailed way and take notes as I go. And I've, you know, I think it's become more common in the past maybe five years, this concept of like an investment journal and, and sort of chronicling things as you come across them. But you know, it has been enormously helpful to me to compile this stuff over the years. And it, it sort of becomes tedious at times, right? I mean, it becomes a little bit like the wax on, wax off kind of hazing of a, of a new you know, young initiate to an industry or a practice. But I do think there's a lot to be said for just the monk-like practice of sitting there and, and basically transcribing these foundational thoughts. Uh, it'd be even better, which I didn't do in this document. I've done it sort of elsewhere in a literally a handwritten notebook where I sort of take the notes and transcribe them into my own words. And I actually do that in the document itself, whether it's a book or an article or whatever. And I'll do that in the margins and I'll do it in my, in my own notebook. So I'd highly recommend that. I mean, the reason why I've been somewhat reluctant to share it, you know, more broadly is one, just because I'd never put the time into formatting it to make it suitable for public consumption or user-friendly at all. But I also think there's just a, a bit of a risk that people can confuse this for what it's meant to be, which is I've seen a lot of people that sort of think that this is the end goal in and of itself. I mean, we've certainly all seen analysts over the years that we know or at least I certainly have, they're incredibly bright. And they're these amazing repositories of facts and data and figures and numbers and sound bites. And they can pair it back those things on an ad, as needed basis, almost, you know, off the top of their head instantaneously. And it's impressive, I guess, as a feat of memory. But at the same time, it's like they've kind of totally missed <laughs> the broader philosophical thought. And so I, I think the problem with a document like this is that it lacks the broader context of how these foundational thoughts were created, what they were meant to convey when people came up with them. And so I just don't know that it really has much utility for anyone else because you're going to read through this big long thing and you're going to see a lot of like really juicy, pithy 
sound bites that are you're going to shake your head and go, yeah, that's that's exactly right. That's really smart. And it's just not going to do that much for you. So it's sort of like we had feedback the other day. Um, I mentioned either last week or the week before, you know, as it, as it pertained to something else that there's, you know, one of the things that I've always relied on, one of my own mental frameworks that I fall back on all the time is that it's much easier to get in trouble with a good idea than it is with a bad idea. And I expounded on that to say that, and that's because you forget that a good idea has limits. And somebody replied on Twitter and said like, oh my God, I've heard that before, but I never thought about it in that context by you clarifying that second sentence to say that it's because you forget that good ideas have limits. That makes all the difference. And, you know, the irony here is that that was in the original text, right? Like Ben Graham said both sentences. It's just people usually truncate the second one and, and forget about that. And that's what I mean about this whole exercise is that if you cut off little sound bites or little pieces of framework or little checklists and they're they're completely divorced from the context in which they belong they might not have any value to you and they could almost be misused in some ways. And so I think it's it's kind of dangerous. And it, it gets into this idea of cloning, right? Which is something I've always really struggled with. I mean, of course, I want to know and read everything that Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and all the other brilliant people that have come before us have ever had to say about this topic because they're some of the best people to have ever done it, right? I mean, if I'm learning how to play golf, I want to watch every swing that Jack Nicklaus and Tiger Woods and Ben Hogan have ever made, right? Like I want to watch all the greats and I want to study all the greats, but I can't swing a club just like them and I can't invest just like Warren Buffett. So I think that's where people also get kind of dragged into the ditch here is this idea of cloning or idol worship or just mindless replication isn't really helpful either because you have to study what these great people have done and study what they've said and written, but you have to then apply it in your own world and you have to seek, you know, it's going to sound like a highbrow philosophical statement and I don't know what the roots of this statement frankly are, but you have to seek what they sought rather than to just mindlessly imitate them. And so I I just want to caution people. And, you know, I guess now that, that I put it out there, we can link to it in the show notes and people can flip through it and maybe there'll be some little nugget of wisdom in there, but it's really like, it's like eye candy for investing nerds, right? I, I just don't think that it's all that um, helpful as a standalone, right? Unless someone were to take it and go replicate it on their own, which would take, I mean, I don't even know how many hundreds of hours it probably took me. And I was, again, I was doing this from like 2007 through 2011, give or take. This is a long time ago. I haven't updated it. And, and there's a lot that could be updated for sure. But unless somebody were to actually go do that on their own, I'm not sure they would get anything useful out of it like I did. So um, anyway, I, I just wanted to throw that out there as a comment because I think people will you know, be interested in it. They might see it floating around out there. And I don't want to have it you know, misinterpreted or misused. Again, it's not like it's a really... Unlike some of these blowhards that are out leading the the masses into these dangerous trading propositions. I don't think this will result in any bad outcomes like that, but I do think it's, it's worth, you know, kind of having that caveat out there. So I don't know, what do you guys think about the concept of, of, you know, studying what other people have said and done and how easily you can get drawn down the path into things that you don't really understand or shouldn't be doing or how, you know, smart or dumb it might be to, to clone or just sort of mimic people outright. So yeah, this is a great topic and it's kind of perfect timing for me because I've been in like this highly reflective mode as I do my annual letter. And as 2020 was an especially like wild tumultuous year where, I don't know, you end up thinking about life and everything. (laughs) Where I stand on this, I think I learned very similarly to you. Reading broadly and deeply and journaling my path. I journaled much of it in a daily blog. Um, and you know, every day I was writing something and one of the traps I found myself falling into at the time, uh, because it was such an immersive project that lasted years, our years almost exactly overlap. I mean, they basically do. I started maybe a little later, closer to 2008. I went through 2012 with this everyday kind of thing. And, you know, what I was thinking about was, I've been reflecting on this. I did not have my own identity and I felt a little like a chameleon 
where the most recent thing I read was how I most recently framed myself at that time. And, you know, when you do this so immersively, like I found myself not truly taking a step back and thinking like, who am I and how do I want to invest? Despite having had a mentor very early on while being introduced to markets formally, who insisted that, you know, everyone's investment style, everyone's approach to market should be reflective of their personality and what works to get them in a position of conviction. And I think this translates directly to cloning. I think one of the things that people have problems with is they decide that, um, you know, I really admire so-and-so. And obviously, you know, oftentimes it's, it's, it's Buffett where someone's like, I admire Buffett. And therefore I want to invest like Buffett without being like, who am I? What am I best at? And what was Buffett himself? What is Buffett himself best at? You know, do I have the tools to then go be like him? Or do I have different tools and different strengths? And can I approach things from a different way? And so I do think a lot of people end up in, in a lot of trouble because when you are cloning, you are outsourcing conviction from yourself. You're adding a layer of abstraction. Your conviction is your conviction in believing that you can invest like so-and-so instead of outright conviction that you could build the right kind of idea and framework for yourself to see it through. And so, you know, I mean, I, I think, God, journaling is the best way to learn. I like kick myself all the time for not having been as, uh, I, I, I've definitely lost a little of my consistency on that side of things. <clears throat> I've personally fell into this trap where I'm like, if I don't have something really important to, to write now, I don't really want to write it. Part of it was having a blog, right? If it was just a journal... I could write it and I don't care because it, there's not an audience, but like I found, I fell into this trap of wanting to say something profound and with meaning that could withstand time. It's like, Oh, you can't really do that every day. You're definitely not going to be able to do that every day. But yeah, you know, I think a lot of it, the journey uh, is the reward in a lot of sense, but like do it from this perspective. If I could do it again, I would have been thinking a little more about like, what are my skills? Like my, my innate traits that translate really well to the market and which are the, who are the people that have deployed similar tools to a degree of success? And like, what are the other things they've layered on, on top of that? Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm, I think cloning is one of the, one of the ways that so many people set themselves on the wrong path when they go to the markets. Yeah. And you actually said it better than I did, which is, I guess the the danger inherent is twofold. One is that you'll get tempted into things you don't really understand. But even if you do understand it and it's it comes from an idea comes from the people you admire or people who are more successful, it's just that you won't follow the full process. You'll short circuit your own process. And then when the inevitable, and I do mean inevitable, bout of adversity hits, you won't know which way to turn because you won't have developed your own conviction and you want to follow your own process. So that's that's really, I guess, the big risk here and the the problem in being, you know, one of these pied pipers that are leading people to ruin is if you do that, it's it's just not likely to end well. But um, I, I totally agree, by the way, about writing things down. It's so important to, you can do it digitally. I've, I've done it digitally. I've done it by hand with ink and paper. I keep all my old notebooks. So I have a, a giant file box of every notebook I've written in. I usually go through one every few months, a couple of year to uh, to go back. And it's enormously valuable to go back and figure out what on earth was I thinking, you know, in, two th- in, in mm-hmm. the beginning of 2008 and the end of 2008, right? Or the beginning of last year, a year ago right now. And that's one thing that I've been kind of beating myself up about is that, you know, when, when things really hit and got ugly almost exactly a year ago, February and March of 2020, I had so much going on. I mean, the obvious things in the portfolio and the fund, I had this kind of unrelated work situation going on that I never envisioned that took up a lot of time. I had obviously my personal life with the kids and and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Running daycare. (laughs) Yeah, trying to keep the wheels on in all matter of life. And I really did cut out a lot of that reflective, deliberate writing and thinking when I went back through the end of it, which I try to do every year or every 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 summer and every winter. Um, and it was, you know, it was not good, right? I, I I did not do a great job at that. And you'd think that I would have learned better by now, but I, I really failed. And I mean, I used to be 
so good about it. And I still have it. I'm actually looking at it right now. I have a little small notebook where every day I would write down, it's just like training for a marathon or anything else, right? I would literally write down every day what I was reading and and how much of it I was reading. And I would chronicle that every single day because just the act of forcing me to write down how I spent my time reading and thinking that day forced me to do it in a way that was more structured and focus my time and attention on the more valuable things instead of the clickbait and nonsense and all the fun, fluffy stuff that doesn't get you anywhere. So I could not recommend that process enough to people. It's incredibly valuable. And again, I would... That's why I just didn't even want to put this these documents out there is because I don't want somebody to read and think, oh, that's great. You know, that's cool. I've gotten everything out of that. It's like, no, the, the, the value from it is in doing it yourself, right? It's not in reading somebody else's. So um, I just want to encourage people to, to see it for what it is. But I do think it's awesome to put it out there because you are giving a roadmap for someone else, not necessarily that they have to follow it like mile by mile, but it's incredibly valuable material um, and kind of shows, I'd say, some threads uh, that are going through your mind at a particular time, the direction you could go from one to the next. And, you know, I mean, I definitely am a big believer in at the end of the day, like giving back to the community, like some of these trials along the way, right? I mean, you know, it says a lot about you as a person that you're intellectually curious and that you took this upon yourself and you didn't really, I mean, obviously you have mentors and you have people who you respect that steered you certain ways, but you were like self-motivated and drove right. down these paths. And so that is um, hopefully the good thing that comes out of this. Cause yeah, like the, the two things that I shared that we'll put in the show notes are not very reflective. They don't really have anything to do with me. It's literally like the first time I ever read The Intelligent Investor or every time I came across an article in the popular press, you know, through the financial crisis. And it would be this, you know, sort of foundational thought or a soundbite. And then every time I came across, you know, an investor's framework, you know, whether it's Jim Chanos's red flags for short selling or whether it's Phil Fisher's, you know, criteria for long investment or whatever, I would just put it in this document. So this wasn't like me going through and hand critiquing it. That's what I did elsewhere and which I did in my own hand, which I, I'm not sharing publicly right now. But hmm. I do think you're right that hopefully if people see how much good stuff is out there and how many different ways there are to skin the cat, right? Because that's one other thing that I've gotten to really appreciate the older I get is that it's really cool to sit here and say, you know, I'm a Buffett acolyte. He's the best. He's the GOAT. Rah, rah, go team. <laughs> that doesn't do much for anybody, right? Like there are a lot of different ways to come at this. And what you really need is clear thinking, right? And you can't, so much teach clear thinking, but you can reinforce it if the, the threads of it are already there. And so something like this, if it does inspire somebody to go out and launch their own process where they go out and spend 500 or 1,000 hours or something combi- compiling all the little notes and, and thoughts that they come across, that maybe it'll make them the better for it as it did for me. So that was really the only thought. Yeah. And you know what? This is a common theme. I think we've hit on a lot, right? Be curious, ask good questions. That's how you become a good investor. It's like, you know, the technical tools are kind of easy. Uh, And even when you like master them, if you're the best at them, they only get you so far. It's like asking the right questions is the name of the game. Right. Be curious. Exactly. Yeah. And so the one thing that's, I mean, another thing you're you're saying better than I, I'm literally looking at my notes and outline for this is I kept saying, you know, you, you have to always ask why to its logical end. And if you if you don't ask why and you just say, oh, yeah, I know that because I read this soundbite that Ben Graham wrote 80 years ago or something about what it means <laughs> to be a good investor. Like, that's totally useless, right? You have to keep asking why until you've internalized it so much that you can rephrase it and use it in your own words, in your own brain without having to revert to a ridiculous document like this one. Totally yeah. agree. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll jump in and just kind of share my thoughts as you guys were talking. I I definitely agree with Elliot that Phil, um, you know, it's it's a service you're doing to the community, and I think um, actually you probably already had people reach out to you because of that, and even if they haven't reached out, it it is getting noticed and appreciated, and I think um, you know you're doing something that I think smart people will do more and more of. It kind of goes to that idea of of building in public in a way where, um, 
you're just sharing your process and that's how you build a network today, I feel like. Um, sharing that in public, getting feedback, getting noticed, and basically building your reputation that way. And, you know, it it used to be that, let's say you're a runner, you know, you kind of get results by doing something consistently. And a lot of people today in investing are just want, you know, the quick result. Um, they're not consistent and they're always jumping on the latest uh, trend. So just uh, sharing um, like this and showing that you've been consistent for such a long time, I think, says a ton and uh, it immediately sets you apart. Well, you said something really interesting there that I want to circle back on because this is something I've, I've struggled with the idea of sharing it as well, which is one, I didn't think it was really worth very much to anybody else, right? Like the, the journey was the reward for me and I didn't think it was going to be worth it to somebody else because they need to go out and replicate it, not just thumb through it and feel like they've gotten smarter for that five minutes or something, right? So <laughs> the second thing is it was just ill-formatted. And the third is that this is where my own weird personality has both benefits and drawbacks is I just, I want the feedback. I want people to contribute to it and I want people to chime in on things that I've missed or ways that it could be improved or whatever. But I, I feel like so much of what's worked in the world in the last five years, and this is what gets me really uncomfortable on something like Twitter, is just this look at me culture that we live in, right? Like, I'm so smart. Look at me and all of my followers. I'm drawing attention to myself. And by drawing attention to myself, I'm going to just figure it out later as to how and why that's valuable. And that's one of the things that I like so much about this podcast and all the things that both of you guys have done is that when it's done in the genuine spirit of actually learning and getting better, that's what makes it all so powerful. But I've just seen so many people. And, you know, we're going to get off on the old man rant that we were having last week about the GameStop faux populism nonsense that what, a lot of people... you're not going to selfie a pic of your pecs now? <laughs> well, I mean, look, that's one extreme, right? But like, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I just have never had a desire to live out loud like that, right? I'm, I'm perfectly happy to do it myself and do it behind the scenes. And I'm more than happy to share it, right? It's not about keeping these rewards for myself. It's more just this like culture of self-aggrandizement that seems to have really taken over. And it's something that I've really struggled with. I mean, I just, I don't, I don't have a great answer for it. I, you know, I feel like I've been very ineffective at it to John, to your point about building a network or whatever, like I'm sure that I've done a suboptimal job in that regard. And so this isn't really a push in that direction, right? This is just a very interesting related case study in that. And uh, I don't know what the right answer is. It's all, again, it comes back to personality, right? What fits well for you. Um, for me, it's in some ways, it was like accidental, the extent to which I'm out there on Twitter. It actually, in some ways, co-opted my journaling early on. And right. so, you know, I was just like, oh, I could put these thoughts out there. I didn't even have followers or anything. I didn't have, I was just putting them out there as much for myself as I was for anyone else. And then suddenly people start engaging with it and it takes on a life of its own. Um, but, you know, you got to take the good with the bad. There are definitely downsides with being out there too that are separate and apart from like what might be interpreted as promotionalism that is kind of genuine in intent. Um, you know, being wrong on something quite publicly doesn't feel great. Um, but there's a lot you can learn about uh, yourself and about it along the way. Sure. Um, and I think, you know... At the end of the day, you just got to be yourself. And that's what it comes down to. Um, and, and I think you do a pretty great job of it. I think you sell yourself a little short in some ways because you, you got a good presence out there um, and you engage in, I think, the right the right spirit. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's pretty helpful. Yeah, it's funny because some of my friends will like give me a hard time like, oh, look at Mr. Social Media Influencer. And I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, I don't think you understand. Like there are people that literally have very little to actually offer that have accumulated tens, hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers or, you know, these, these large online followings where I just really struggle to understand what the appeal is. And that's, that's again, where I really feel like I'm on, I'm in uncharted territory where I really just have no clue what the hell I'm doing because the things that should matter sometimes seem to not matter. So anyway, whatever this is, whatever it turns into this, this, these two stupid documents, they're not really going to be 
all that relevant to anything. I mean, one thing I will say, the one super valid thing that can come out of this type of environment and something I'll send around that I want to talk about on a future podcast is actually the presentation I gave at John's uh, conference in 2016 or 2017, I don't remember, where I basically tried to take the psychology of human misjudgment, which was, what, 94 or something like that, and tried to update it with more current examples and more current case studies and try to layer on some. I mean, it's actually amazing how much of the stuff in there kind of foreshadowed the work that Kahneman and Tversky were going to publish in coming years. And and it's incredible how ahead of its time that talk really was. But so it also just has some really old-fashioned examples in it. So I tried my best to update it with more fresh thinking. And good God, have the last four or five years (laughs) given us a lot more examples that are in the news on like a daily basis. So I'll, I'll use this opportunity and this platform to send that around and try to bring in some fresh ideas that people can contribute to to make that document better so that because that's more of like a fully fleshed out kind of thing where like there's a there's a topic or a concept presented and then there's really some some meat on the bone that people can chew on and think about and go through and it's probably a lot more practical as a as a document or as a framework than than the two things we were talking about earlier but i'll, I'll send that around in the future and that'll probably make for a good future episode and do a tweet storm and ask people for their yeah. favorite cases that are relevant today at the very end, right? That's one of the great yeah. use cases of Twitter, crowdsourcing. That's, a, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's what I need to do more of. And that's a very good, very valid use for the platform that isn't like one of these blowhards, look at me, I'm so special. <laughs> it's a it's a genuine intellectual effort to share and get better. And and that's that's awesome, right? So just do that. Yeah, that's that's really good stuff, uh, and it'll be great to to get that out, uh, Phil. Um, you know, as you said, we have new examples every day, pretty much. Uh, so I guess it's the times we live in. Um, just something I wanted to mention uh, with regard to journaling and what you guys talked about, kind of um, just writing things down. I think. It is such a great idea. And I think for people listening, if you're wondering what to write down, it's not even so important what you write down. I mean, one very simple thing would be anytime you're thinking of buying a stock to just write down, I am buying this stock because and finish that sentence and then read Mm -hmm. it and see if it makes sense. But really, it's just about taking that extra step you know, before you act or transact in the market to just take that extra step of putting your thoughts on paper and then just reading them to yourself and and scrutinizing whether that makes sense. I mean, if you think about it, it's pretty much the diametrical opposite of what these various apps are trying to do. They're trying to eliminate any steps or hurdles between you know, you getting separated from your money and putting it into uh, a security you may know nothing about except the ticker or that it's trending. And um, and by introducing those extra steps, you're just going to slow down the process. And in a lot of cases, that's going to save you from um, some, some big mistakes. Um, so I would definitely recommend that. I haven't been a great um, journaler myself. Uh, one thing that I have picked up recently is just trying to um, use Rome Research more. They have this bi-directional linking, and it's it, it, it's a bit of a, a rage lately. I think if you go on Twitter, a lot of folks are talking about Rome Research. I haven't really gone deep enough to, I guess, appreciate it as much as some other people. But I feel like that's probably a great journal to keep if you don't want to put literally pen to paper. And then just one other comment on the cloning side. You know, I definitely agree. There's a ton of nuance there in terms of, um, you know, kind of building up conviction if you're just copying someone's ideas, uh, inevitably they're going to be down a whole bunch. How do you hang on? Uh, because you're not going to know in real time if the investor you're cloning has sold or not. Um, those 13 Fs are filed 45 days after a quarter end. Uh, and so you really need to do your own work and build up your own conviction. 
Um, one thing I, I do feel like um, perhaps is a little bit the case as well is that I feel sometimes there's not as much genuine cloning going on where someone's going through a 13F and just, you know, then doing the work and deciding to um, to buy a stock that an investor owns. But I feel like there's more clustering than cloning going on where basically uh, these things get talked about. So you're almost kind of cloning, but in the second instance where you're getting social proof that this is the name to be cloned. And all of a sudden, you have a whole cluster of investors in a name, which to me can be really dangerous because if the thesis changes, you're going to have a lot of people rushing to the door at the same time. Um, the kind of cloning that I uh, have done myself is just cloning without talking to anyone, just pouring over the filings, ideally you know, looking at investors that are not even so well known but are very successful those who are active in the microcap space may remember um, the late Lloyd Miller the third. Oh yeah, that was a guy who was just immensely successful. Didn't talk to anyone or didn't talk publicly to anyone. But I would always pour over his filings, and I found many good, great ideas. But it wasn't there was no clustering going on that I was aware of. So. That's kind of the approach I would take. Um, anyway, Lloyd passed. Lloyd passed away. That's what I remember reading. I didn't, I didn't know that. That's really. I don't know it yeah, firsthand, but yeah, very interesting case study. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't interact with him much, but years and years ago, yeah, same sort of thing. We're like, what's he up to? He was doing some activist kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, definitely an independent thinker, and and in his own right, I think he was a what I gathered, a clear thinker, and that's what we're all trying to do. So yeah, I, I actually agree 100% with what you just said and what a clarification to the point that maybe I was trying to make was that if you're going to be copying something from someone else, so you're, you're taking other people's investment ideas and, and replicating them, that is that can be okay. I just think you need to be entirely explicit about it and call it for what it is. And it almost needs to be rules-based because the the mixing and matching of doing your own homework and thinking and copying other people is where I think you can get into all kinds of trouble, right? It's like mixing and matching trading and investing or, or anything else, right? Which are just not really complementary things. So I know people that have, I'm sure we all do, some people that I, I like and respect in their own right that have written software to literally scrape 13F filings in, in their peers around the world and just say, okay, this is a manager we know we like. We know this manager does good work. Every time this manager files a, a new position or scales a position up or down, even though there's a delay and a lag in the filing date there to the action, we're just going to rip, we're going to rip replicate that. And that's fine. I mean, that, that could work. I, I, it's not my way of doing things, but I'm not here to totally condemn that. Um, I just think, to your point, it comes with so much nuance and it's almost like you do that at the very end if you've really been around the block and learned lessons the hard way and done your own thinking. It's not a great way to start investing, I don't think. What you want to do starting is to figure out what those great investors saw. What were they looking for and what did they find and, and try to mimic the parts of the process that work for you rather than copying the results and the, the output of the process. Yeah, and I want to add one more distinction there too, because I, I agree with you on the general notion that you could source ideas from looking at what other smart investors are doing. But you can't like shortcut the work. You have to make the idea your own. You have to make sure it fits within your framework, within your circle of competence, and you have to do all the work you would do as if you found the idea from anywhere else. And it's not like you could just take the fact that there's a good investor in there and be like, ah, I like this, you know, I'm going to shortcut anything. If it doesn't fit, you know, it's not, it's not something that'll, that, that I think you could have real conviction behind like naked wines, which I presented, you know, at the best ideas conference uh, a couple of weeks back, I learned about it from Norbert Liu uh, filing a large stake. Um, but it took me a good six months and a lot of work, a lot of hours spent on the company in various different ways and having put it aside for a while as well before I was actually like, okay, I get this and this fits me, this fits my process and I'm ready. 
right? So I think, you know, and I think, John, I, I don't necessarily want to put words in your mouth, but you you do the work too. Like, it's not like you just see that this small cap investor buys something and it's interesting. It's like, you know, that's an idea that goes on my list alongside a bunch of other things that are competing for mindshare and capital. And I got to then follow through with my process and get there. I'm just going to agree with you on that. <laughs> Why would I argue with that? Uh, terrific. Although, Elliot, you know, you're rising up on that list of investors where I do almost no work. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, well, look, I mean, to be all, to be entirely serious, like I, I've never once bought something because someone else has brought it up. But I think there's two sides of that coin. One is I've missed a lot of good ideas because someone who I think is a total bozo was was invested or was touting <laughs> it or whatever, and I just totally wrote it off right away. And at the same time, I've been too slow to say, all right, I know this person well enough to evaluate the kind of quality work that they do, which doesn't mean, of course, they're infallible. It doesn't mean they could have gotten something horribly wrong. But there is value to having a relatively small network of people that you know both personally and professionally and can evaluate the quality of their process and say, like, all right, you know, if XYZ says this, I'm going to trust and verify and really bump this to the top of my list and really dive in aggressively rather than just reading some random, you know, kind of empty statement somewhere out in the void or from somebody you don't know or whatever. So that that is totally valid. And, and you know, again, I think there are plenty of examples of very clear thinkers making very good, very big decisions on the basis of very little information and a very quick decision and turnaround because they have the right framework in place. They have clear thinking embedded in their veins and they know the people at work. And that is a very wonderful setup if you can get there. Great. Well, on that note, Elliot, let's move on to you for our topic of the week. All right. So I have been uh, rereading Capital Account by the uh, Marathon Investment Team. I'm fortunate to have a copy Capital returns is the one that you could still buy today, and a lot of the same themes uh, repeat. And I'm going to read a quote, which I think you know is is very much a common thread throughout both books, and talk about what it means to me. And then you know we'll open it up. The quote is: "The stock market is really a market in replacement capital. If new capacity is urgently needed in any sector, a boom can be relied upon to produce the necessary capital." And I think this is something that's really important that a lot of people take for granted. <clears throat> and I think it's both timely and relevant um, in terms of where we are in the stock market today. You know, we have gone from the financial crisis through this prolonged period where, by and large, investment, and I'm not talking about like, you know, people investing, I'm talking about investment as measured in uh, the GDP equation, C plus I plus G. Uh, plus X minus M equals aggregate demand, right? The I portion of that investment has been lacking in our economy uh, to a great degree. And, you know, some people say like, why are companies repurchasing their shares instead of investing in their business? And, you know, I think this is one of the key answers to it. Um, if a company views their shares as cheaper than the 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 desire of their investor base to actually invest in their business, they're going to repurchase shares, right? That's what it is. There's a really complex uh, system at work here. So I'm obviously simplifying and honing in on a couple of variables. Uh, but you fast forward to today and suddenly, you know, we still have not had really large investment in the economy, but we do now have a pretty high stock market. And the reason why I was reading Capital Account is I'm trying to answer this question in my head. So like where things stand today, the stock market is high on, you know, many uh, objective metrics. But what we haven't had is this period of reflexivity where a high stock market has come along with really strong investment. And that strong investment leads to even more enthusiasm in the stock market. Um, the investment, the feedback loop between stock prices and investment hasn't been there. And this quote, I think, sums it up so nicely. Like, we've been flirting with uh, the upper bounds of what are like really long term fair value metrics for a while, but we've never gone like above them. And one of the interesting things that you could observe, uh, observe looking back on capital account and the marathon team, 
is they actually first called TMT an overvalued sector in 1994. And, you know, it turns out through reflexivity, uh, if you look at TMT in 1994, it wasn't overvalued. But what happened was because it was overvalued, there were massive amounts of incremental capital invested in the space over the next six years. And yet valuation kept stepping up each step up along the way. And then you end up again at this Ben Graham quote of a good idea taken too far, right? That's that's how things get a little out there. And I'm trying to figure out in my head where we are, where things like should be, where things go from here. But I do think one of the interesting consequences from here, you could end up in a period uh, where you now, um, we are just coming out of recession, factual statement, like that's what's happening at the end of this quarter. Uh, beginning of next quarter, we will, you know, have had a, uh, we'll, we'll act, we'll definitely be out of recession. And so it's weird just do that with already pretty high equity valuations. Uh, but companies in aggregate are going to have a big inducement to invest. At the same time, we've also, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, we've had shrinkage of publicly traded equity uh, supply over the prior decade. Um, we're now at the very beginning stages of increasing equity supply in capital markets. So like, what does it all mean? Heck, if I know, you know, I can't pull it all together. I feel like I'm feeling some deja vu to some other podcasts where we've talked about some of the, some of these similar themes. But, you know, I think it's something that's really important. I think it's a really interesting framework. So the marathon framework in broader terms is like, you know, focus on sectors where there's capital that's been coming out of it. There's consolidation, there's rationalization, there's uh, supply reduction, and you could feed into pretty consistent demand. On the other hand, like be wary of sectors where you've had really uh, large creation of new supply, um, where you've had demand that may have been consistent and growing, but like supply growth that's outstripping that actual demand. And so I think it's interesting to just think about some of the areas in the economy where that is or isn't happening and, you know, what's happening in the economy itself at large. Um, but I do think, you know, right now, especially with COVID, there could be some mismatches between where people are investing supply and where there is actual demand. And there are going to be some areas where it's actually very constructive, where you're getting investment in, you know, like expanding e-com capacity, where you start seeing commentary like, PayPal's earnings call yesterday, Dan Schulman calls out how you have these varying degrees of open and closed economies within the US. And yet what you've seen in e-com behavior is that it's actually been pretty consistent and persistent across uh, varying degrees of open and closed. That, that once this tra transformation happened, as, and it's especially acute in older demographics, so like the 50-year-old plus are finally engaging with digital technologies in a way they hadn't before. And it was catalyzed by something specific that, that came out of need, but has turned into like true behavioral patterns that are going to continue from now on. Like that's gonna steer investment in, in a certain direction. And so these are just some things I'm thinking about. I know I'm obviously like not tying it together, but I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts. And maybe by the end of this, I could help uh, tie together some of my own thinking. Yeah, do, do you wanna go first, John, or you want me to? Dive in. I don't I'm, I'm happy to to go. Um, it's interesting how you laid it out, Elliot, because I don't have super strong thoughts either. But I often feel like we're actually pretty late in the investment cycle, at least in some sectors. I mean, capital seems super cheap for some of the hottest sectors. Like uh, there's there's this boom in electric vehicles. Let's say. And companies are raising money from investors at super high valuations. Um, I don't know if that's investment. You know, maybe they haven't deployed that money yet. Uh, but we've seen Tesla deploying billions and not turning a profit, so it's not really showing up uh, in in returns, in real returns yet. Um, and Tesla keeps raising billions at very attractive valuation. So definitely, I I agree there's a benefit for society from this, but is there really going to be a benefit for the capitalists that are giving money to those uh, EV companies? I'm not sure. Um, in some cases, perhaps yes, in some not. 
But, you know, I, I feel like you can also think back to the, you can look at the airline industry and what's that Buffett quote about shooting down the Wright brothers, <laughs> uh, where, you know, that was an industry that um, saw a huge boom, obviously, but it wasn't really a great investment. Um, or you take, let's say, the boom that we had, um, it seems to have subsided, but the boom that was a few years ago in cannabis stocks, I feel like there was more than enough investment that went into that sector. Where do I feel like there isn't enough investment uh, now? It's in sectors like ocean shipping, where I look at those presentations and basically uh, the new order book is all the way down, scrapping is going up. And, um, you know, to me, that would be, let's say, a sector to look at rather than some shiny a hot sector that may or may not have gotten all the investment uh, it deserves. You know, oil and gas, I'm not sure about because I feel like there was a ton of overinvestment in the shale uh, area. So I, I wouldn't be um, smart enough to figure that one out. But I also feel like many of the best in best and most profitable sectors right now that also have the best growth prospects are so capital light that they actually don't need a ton of investment. Um, I mean, the companies cannot even reinvest their internally generated capital. Uh, they definitely don't need to raise capital. And, um, you know, that was kind of also a point that I've heard raised a lot with Tobin's Q a measure that worked in the past, but a lot of people say may not work going forward um, because there's things have become a lot more capital light than in the past. So, you know, I don't know enough, but maybe that's a little bit of, um, of helpful nuance uh, for you. Yeah, no, that's all helpful stuff. And it's like really interesting. You hit on a couple themes that are definitely ones that have been on my mind. Um, for example, you mentioned EVs, right? That capital, it's much better for society than it is for capitalists, right? I think it seems pretty clear the, the valuations are pretty frothy. Although at the same time, this account post-market had a really interesting tweet comparing the capital investment at Facebook versus Tesla over the last five years, considering they're both trading at approximately the same market cap. Um, Facebook has invested, I think if I recall off the top of my head, it was something like 10x the total capital over the last five years. And so what Marathon would say is look for those companies that will be investing less capital uh, on an incremental basis from here on out uh, than those that will be investing more. And you, you'd have to guess that Tesla is going to be investing meaningfully more capital. They should raise capital much quicker. And so, you know, that kind of portends potentially some trouble. Um, shipping certainly seems like an interesting one where there's been, you know, little capital invested for quite a while. And yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's one of the challenges that that we have. Some of the areas that are pretty hot um, certainly have had quite a bit of capital coming into them. Um, some of the growth areas definitely have been steered by capital. Uh, but these companies are, uh, you know, I think at Lattice Work in New York last year, Sean Standard Stockton gave a great talk about uh, capital capitalism without capital about some of these companies that are really capable of growing um, without requiring any any incremental invested capital. Um, but I do think even those kinds of companies, though, there are areas where you could see the capital cycle at work. And I'll talk about one that I know quite well and have uh, kind of experienced is the food delivery space, right? So you start with a lot of players doesn't take much capital to get launched, but scale is definitely hard to achieve. It takes a lot of marketing expense, which is a little different. And, um, you know, uh, it gets very competitive. There's this race to the bottom in terms of like what sort of uh, promotions you'll give. But then you see a wave of consolidation and rationalization. And, you know, perhaps you could get to this path of seeing profitability. Now, you know, uh, you have uh, Just Eat Takeaway, which kind of got in the way of the capital cycle truly playing out in the U.S. You'd imagine a different world where Uber bought Grubhub, becomes Gruber, and DoorDash is the other player, and there's only two, and they kind of concede one another's leading markets to each other, and then, you know, everyone lives happily there, there uh, ever after. Um, so there are some ways that this plays. It's still very much valid in new technology, and I think um, if I recall capital account correctly, they actually said it plays out cleaner and better 
in the services and capital lean industries than it does in the industrial and more physical economic industries because there become alternative incentives to keep producing in the very capital-intensive industries. Yeah, so I, I backing up a step with, with my thoughts on this, I, I love that uh, the capital kind of framework that Marathon's put out. And ironically, it occurred to me that I don't think that's in the documents that I had just re- referred to earlier when I was putting this all together. For whatever reason, I think I just sort of skipped over the capital account kind of framework that Marathon has, has espoused so effectively for so long. So I, I don't think that's in there, even though it's something that I've really come to appreciate and rely on. So I totally agree with this, that you know the stock market is a good mechanism for finding replacement, or I would add growth capital, and that booms do serve a very useful social cause in that they attract new capital to areas that need it. And you know, as you mentioned, whether it's the telecom kind of fiber boom of 20 years ago, where sure, there was a lot of misapplied you know, capital allocation there. And we built a lot of fiber we didn't need for a very long time. At least the fiber was in place and could then be utilized in the future. And, you know, even something like the housing stock where it got overbuilt for a long time, um, you know, it, it at least had some sort of functional purpose, either then or theoretically in the future. What becomes so problematic is when booms are speculative and just pure manias. And whether it's, you know, piggly wiggly, in 1925 or whatever it was, 23, I think, when you know there was a massive kind of little guy versus big guy, us versus them. Let's go corner the market and drive the shorts out of a grocery store. You know, the grocery store business didn't need a lot more capital back then. And then in the the physical bricks and mortar, primarily bricks and mortar. GameStop video game re- retailing industry certainly doesn't need a lot more capital right now. So it, it really doesn't serve its intended purpose. But as investors, I, I totally agree um, that it's a very useful framework to sit back and think, is this an industry that's had a lot of capital pour into it? And has that capital come in on economic terms or has it come in on speculative terms? And and, and who's providing that capital and why? Um, you know, and I think back, you, you mentioned the airlines, John. I mean, that's a good one. And, and people love to talk about this and they're almost always wrong about it. And they think, oh, what happened was is that we, you know, the Department of Justice fell asleep and we allowed the consolidation of the industry and that, you know, reduced competition. And that's why fares have gone way up and the industry got way better. And that ignores what happened with the coronavirus in 2020. And that's just categorically not true. What's happened is the competition has actually been vicious in that industry ever since deregulation in 1978 that really didn't take hold until 1980. And the the real prices of air travel, including all the change fees and all the bag fees, which are really just a better way of price discrimination and a more efficient way of pricing the product. But if you include the, the price of the ticket, the price of the bag fees, the change fees, all that stuff, the real cost to fly from point A to point B has declined in real terms every single year and every single decade, almost without interruption for last 40 plus years. And and what happened wasn't that competition was reduced, it's that uneconomic supply was reduced. So if you want to fly from point A to point B, there's tens of thousands of those city pairs. And you've generally had three options on the median city pair. And that's true today. It's true 10 years ago. It's true 20 and 30 years ago. So that really isn't the story. But what you could definitely look at as investors is say, is this a good place for me to deploy my capital? Because at almost every point in history, you've just had lots of new supply and lots of new capital being deployed into that industry, which makes it really hard. So to your point, ocean shipping, I'm, I'm no expert. You know, that, that could be one that's been starved for too long. I saw something the other day about the relative lack of investment in, in new mining uh, enterprises, which is an interesting one. Again, way outside of my area of expertise, oil and gas would, would fall in the same category where I never want to offer investment advice here, but this is certainly not one. I've sort of ruled those industries as being too difficult for me in, in almost all circumstances. One thing I would say is um, Dan Jurgen, who's at uh, IHS Market now and has written the prize and the quest, some Nobel or uh, Pulitzer Prize winning books, um, he wrote a book last year called The New Map, where he kind of breaks down the history of the oil and gas and energy industries and then ties it into geopolitics and climate change consideration considerations, ESG considerations, all sorts of different things. And it's written for a lay audience, but it's actually very good. And, and he would probably make a similar argument 
to, I think, the argument you were making, John, which is that, you know, we're probably going to need fossil fuels in a, in a greater quantity years from now. And if we've starved that investment out over the last 10 years, that, that could be really interesting. Again, I don't have a strong opinion there, but you're, you're 100% right about the capital light nature of the companies that dominate the industry right now. So I don't know if this is what Elliot was, was getting at earlier, but I don't think it's really fair to say that we've starved let's just say the U.S. economy of investment over any period of time. Because I think, one, you have to consider some of the accounting treatment at issue here, right? I mean, when you're spending money on the capital expenditure line on a new plant or a new fleet of trucks or whatever, that's one thing. And when you expense R&D, because it's most often expensed, sometimes the capitalized software or something could be an exception to that, but it's, it's often expensed. I don't see a lot of industries. Again, we just kind of tried to make a laundry list there. I don't see a lot of industries and I certainly don't see an aggregate problem where there's been a huge shortfall in in investment. What I think might be the bigger, broader picture is, you know, if you look back a couple hundred years ago, the real the real shortage was in energy and in mechanical energy. And, and we solved that through the Industrial Revolution. And then the shortage was often in labor. And we solve that again through education and, and opening the workforce to women and all sorts of things. And, and, and so that's kind of largely passive. Maybe, maybe it's not true today, but it's over a decade or a generation, it's probably true. And so about maybe 30 years ago, you could make a case, 40 years ago, certainly, that the, the shortage maybe was in capital. And that that's you know, a function of a lot of different things, but there were a lot of firms that didn't have adequate access to capital. And I think to your point, Elliot, about you know, instead of investing, people are doing financial engineering or maybe paying dividends or God forbid, buying back stock, that's probably just a reflection of the fact that there is now an abundance of capital in areas where there might've been a shortfall before. So I don't think there's anything nefarious. I'm not sure anything's really broken or or performing as it was not intended, but I think that's kind of the reality of the world for now. And and to your point actually about the shrinkage in, in the number of publicly listed firms, you know, again, I think if you start from the the mania of the late 90s. Yeah, there's been a huge diminution in the number of firms. But there again, I don't know what the right starting point is. I mean, look at something like the banking industry in the United States, right? I mean, when when I was born, there were seven or 8,000 commercially chartered banks with deposit insurance. And now that number's fallen, you know, by roughly half. And so what's the right number? I mean, there are perfectly functional um, economies and countries out there that are that are broadly similar to the United States that get by with a tiny fraction of that number, right? And so, I, I mean, is it a is it a problem that we've lost a couple thousand publicly traded banks in my lifetime, or is it you know a relatively normal outcome to be expected? I don't know. I mean, nothing strikes me as totally out of whack there. Right. Yeah. You guys both make a lot of great points, and I think one of the things I'd like to maybe reframe from the beginning is like it's not necessarily my goal to like moralize or say there's a right or wrong level, but sitting here as an observer, you want to take into account the extent to which some of these trends do or don't drive prospective investment returns from here, right? So if we do get this period of heightened investment from here because equity prices are high and it's telling companies, hey, go invest, go invest. You need to justify your valuation with future growth and capital's cheap. Take the capital and make it work. That probably, you know, there's a first level where that kicks in reflexivity and it's good for equity markets, but longer term, it probably, I mean, uh, capital capital cycle theory would say that it actually will inevitably pull down returns, right? Because it makes competition easier. Um, It makes uh, uh, growth of supply outpace growth and demand. And so that too, you know, that's a, there's a competition angle, but that too drives down the price of an incremental unit. Um, and so that's not necessarily a good thing for the business. And it's it's definitely hard to think about like this changing composition. So R&D is very different than capital investment. Um, but, you know, competition plays out very differently in this world. Um, and it's interesting to see. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And again, I, I like the basic framework. Um, I just think it can be it's a great starting point. Starting point, and I just I, I've had trouble over the years really getting to definitive conclusions about all sorts of broad things. But it can be a great point, in particular, to just rule stuff out, right? I mean, I think that's where it can be exceptionally useful. If you see some area where capitals just come pouring in, particularly on on economic terms, it's probably best to just walk away. 
the, the flip side of that's good too, right? Look right. where there's yeah, a no, lot of consolidation be. and say, you know, like what do the economics look like going forward now that there's been kind of some supply taken offline via consolidation, yep. aka For the sure. synergy line, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to say if those synergies are ever real. I mean, the track record's mixed at best in a lot of those cases, but I totally agree. Where you've had a case where the competition has gone from irrational to rational, that can be a very fertile hunting ground for sure. Yeah, and I would just um, kind of agree with you, Elliot, on this notion that we could see uh, benefits from real investment going up. Um, you know, it's kind of, I think what Mark Andreessen wrote about some months ago, it's time to build. And um, there are still parts of the uh, economy that do have underinvestment. They're not necessarily the ones that are getting the investment, but like the the power grid in the U.S. seems way behind the times and uh, even the physical road and bridge infrastructure and things like that. So I could definitely see um, that kind of investment ramping up. That would be probably fis- fiscal investment uh, kind of coming with a government backing behind it. Um, I think, you know, part of, I, Elliot, what kind of the point you were making, I think, was kind of where where might we be in the market cycle? And that's always kind of tough to say. And I think the implication was there still could be a ways to go um, higher. And um, mm-hmm. I, I definitely agree there could be because, um, but maybe for different reasons, it's kind of um, uh, Paul Singer of Elliot was on a podcast recently and he kind of talked about kind of the Fed aspect of this. And I know everybody tunes out when you mention the Fed, but, um, you know, he was talking about basically that it's it was totally right for the Fed to come in in 2008 and prevent a collapse of the system. It was right for the Fed to come in in March 2020. Um, but what wasn't right was that they didn't pull back after 2008. They had ten over 10 years to pull back and they didn't bring the balance sheet back to where it had been. So when 2020 hit and the balance sheet exploded even further, and does anyone really believe that there's a way to bring it back? Now, how does this tie in? I think the point that Paul Singer was making is that basically you, the hurdle for investment has been set so low by the Fed with these artificially low interest rates, where you have the 30-year treasury bond at 2%. And I think any companies and banks and so forth with borrowing capability are actually able to borrow billions and billions of dollars at incredibly low rates. So they are going to be investing. Now, historically, if you're investing in a kind of a risky project with a 5% return would have been unthinkable. But now, arguably, that's a good use of capital. If you can borrow at two and invest at five, you are good. So we are in a very unusual time, I think. And, you know, just applying a historical lens, you might say the market's overdue for a crash and correction and whatnot. But just given these dynamics where you can play almost a carry trade within your own economy, um, who knows where this can still go? Yeah, I think that's right. It can go lots of different places, and that's why it gets so hard. And that's why I've, I've struggled to implement this framework to its logical conclusion, because it can lead you down some really tempting roads, but I'm not sure any of them have real black and white conclusions. But to, to on a more economic, microeconomic or industry structure kind of level, I think you raised a good point. I think the energy grid in most countries, particularly in the U.S., is an obvious example of underinvestment where capital has not been put in at the level it should have been for many years, decades, really. And so that's a really good example. And I don't, again, no investment advice. I don't know if there's any true investment opportunity there, but I, there are some smart companies tackling that. And I think it's for very good reason. And I would say the other one is, to your point broadly about the bipartisan support for for infrastructure spending. And again, I think it's probably less true in a lot of countries than it is in the U.S. and certain countries in Western Europe. But I think there's been a big underinvestment in infrastructure in the last 
you know, call it 50 years even, or since the Interstate Act or the uh, the Dwight Eisenhower era inter- interstate um, spending, way, you know, because they've just failed to keep up with inflation at the most basic level and, and lots of different things, right? And so I think if you've seen that level of spending or even on supply chains where you look around at, at some of the supply chains, and again, this is a very neutral bipartisan statement, but it doesn't make a lot of sense to have your supply chain get stretched so thin across four or five or six different countries or geographies to where the slightest disruption can make the whole thing break and you just have no access to, you know, nasal swabs to conduct conduct tests in a, in a pandemic mm-hmm. or something like that, right? So I think if you could find a way to redeploy investment dollars into some of those supply chains to make them, yes, slightly less financially efficient. You know, there's no doubt that some of the margins and returns on capital might have to come down in some of those cases because if you're producing something with a very low dollar cost and you add just a tiny bit of cost, it's going to be painful, but it's also going to make the system and the economy and the civilization so much more robust to have that, you know, investment deployed into some very thoughtful areas that I think really deserve it. Yeah, that's one of the big areas that I think we're going to get a lot of investment in. You know, I mean, when you very slowly move a little bit of share each year to e-com, it's possible for some of your supply chain to be left behind as an afterthought and focus on customer acquisition first. But when everything moves at once, you don't have to acquire customers. That capital is freed to focus elsewhere. And I think supply chain is going to be one of those areas. Uh, I remember a podcast early on when Chris was talking about Nike, and I was thinking about that a lot there as well. Um, you know, that's definitely something that I, I could see like what you're saying, the benefits accrue to society as well. Um, not a bad area to, to drive down the cost of capital. Exactly. Okay, terrific. Well, we'll leave it there, guys. Thanks for another great discussion. And uh, thanks everybody for listening. Till next week, take care. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.